0: Gresham College presents The Science of Monetary Policy by Professor Jagjit Chada, Gresham Professor of Commerce. Well, good evening. Um, Thank you very much for uh, coming along this uh, lovely spring day down to Barnard's Inn. It's a delight for me to be back again to talk to you today about um, a science of monetary policy. Um, In our first three lectures, the previous lectures, we thought about the development of money and the way that the people who controlled money had to think about standards for money or monetary exchange. So that money itself was something that would allow the separation of income and expenditure over time and over space and allow people to trade, essentially. And then we looked at the development of monetary policy. Um, First, the accidental perhaps learning that by changing Interest rates, you could alter the level of inflation output in an economy, possibly to offset shocks. And the gradual learning over the 20th century um, of this mechanism led perhaps to the responsibility of the government to try and stabilize the level of output and inflation and perhaps increase the overall welfare of the common wheel or everyone in the country. Um, and in last month's lecture, we thought a, a little bit more about the problems. That monetary policymakers came across. Very much problems of information. How do you collect enough information in real time, which is very difficult, and influence the economy in the way that you want to, when you know the economy itself is evolving and learning from your decisions? Today, we'll further go down that route of that form of analysis and think more about the revolution in thought that started in the 60s and 70s and continued and perhaps had, had as its apogee the development of the inflation-targeting mechanism that we adopted in the UK in 1992. Um, I don't for a minute think that's the end of monetary history. We'll go through that in the next two lectures, where we think we may go and what the problems were of that regime. But let me try and explain, in the hour or so that I have, why we ended up with this view that was prevalent in what was, to my eyes, the long expansion of 1992 to 2007, but what other commentators have called the great stability, a phrase which those of you who know me will know that I dislike intensely. Um, I think central banks um, moved first from the private sphere to the public sphere. That's an example of what the Bank of England was about since its inception in 1694 and ultimately to its nationalisation after World War II. Um, And central banks have gradually took on in that long period the achievements of many different things, from looking after dysfunctional markets, thinking about the lender of last resort function, we sketched over budgets and ideas um, in a previous lecture, even to debt management or fiscal policy. But what we can see is a gradual focusing in of what central bank activity was about, so that by the 1990s, it almost became solely an occupation with inflation or monetary stabilisation? Whether that was right or wrong is a question I'm not sure I have the answer for today, but let us consider some of the issues or events that led to that as a conclusion. Is the idea that an independent central bank pursuing an inflation target the end of monetary history? It was an idea that was doing the rounds, as you may recall, in the 1990s, with the possibility of the end of history... Some people are arguing that the end of history involved the creation of parliamentary democracy, an idea thrown up by the newly liberated countries in Eastern Europe. But I want to go back a couple of steps and explain to you why economists came to understand the monetary policy idea was really a game between policymakers and smart economic agents, and a game in which there were many possible outcomes. Decisions had to be made not only about the collection of information about the state of the economy, but what institutional devices, what rules, what forms of rhetoric, what forms of policy-making speeches, what form of reports are required to get people to believe sincerely in the objectives the central bank has tried to carry out? Monetary rules needed to be shown to people that they would dominate discretion. I shall explain later on what I mean by discretion. I think in a world in which people just change their minds and do something else to which they previously said they would do. and We want to avoid that kind of outcome if we can. And so the monetary policy problem came to be signalled or signified by a search for fixed points. Fixed points for the monetary policymaker and fixed points for agents in the economy making plans for their own consumption and investment decisions. If we could all agree about the same fixed point, we could all coordinate about it and end up with a better result than otherwise. But even there, there were problems that were exposed in that regime. Those of us who lived through, and we all have because we're now here, 2007, 2008, 2009, would know very well some of the problems that were exposed by what might be called the fixation with inflation alone and perhaps some element of forgetting what monetary policy or central banks ought to be thinking about as well. In fact, uh, Ralph Sayers, uh, at the beginning of the period we're about to look at, 1957, wrote, um, thinking about what central bankers were doing, almost the antithesis of what they ended up doing by the end of this period... Note, he says, the essence of central banking is discretionary control of the monetary system. The purpose of central banking has been defined in various ways to maintain stability of the price level, to keep the economy on an even keel, and so on. The choice of purpose, the object of monetary policy, is not irrelevant to the choice of method. A community might hope, more reasonably in some cases than in others, to attain its ends by making the monetary system work to rule. And working to rule he says, is the antithesis of central banking. A central bank is is necessary only when the community decides that a discretionary element is desirable. The central banker is the man who exercises his discretion, not the machine that works to rule. His idea of rules versus discretion here is that somehow a rule is a sharply defined objective from which you either succeed or fail. You either obey the rule or you break the rule. What Sayers has in mind is a more discretionary notion of conservation, management, or gradualism, something whereby we're overseeing a whole system which might involve banks, money markets, foreign exchange markets, dare I say interbank markets, um, mortgage markets, and the central bank stands at the middle of all of these and has to conserve them. That's the mindset from which Sayers emerged. It was a mindset alien to those of us thinking about a science of monetary policy in the 1990s. It's a mindset to which we have had to open our minds to once again after the crisis. But for more on that, come next time rather than today. would be wrong with me not to throw up a few adverts for next month. So what was the end of monetary history? The end of monetary history, it seemed to be in the 1990s, a CPI-CPI consumer price index, based inflation target of around 2%, 2% or less, if you're unfortunate and love to live in the euro area, um, set by, of for a joke. Um, set by the government, not by the central bank. So there's a social contract there in a sense, but implemented by an operationally independent central bank, a committee of disinterested experts concentrating on inflation, furrowing their very smart brows as they think about what they need to do. As an indicator, um, where inflation is the sole indicator of economic imbalances, a separation principle was in play. by this time, fiscal and financial factors we were all put in a box, and on the box it said, do not open, because they'll take care of themselves. The government will balance its surpluses and deficits so debt doesn't explode, and the financial sector will, in its own wish to guard its reputation and its longevity, ensure it doesn't make risky lending and lead to activities that would threaten its own demise. That was the view. Interesting. When you enter this world... Policy actions and explanations have to be directed at influencing people's beliefs. So, as I said earlier, they focus on the fixed point that you yourself as a central banker as your objective. And it turned out that belief, in even in our cynical age, could still be a powerful weapon if you get people to believe in the inflation target. Now, after that preamble, I'm going to spend a few minutes on the economic record. And I'm going to cut the economic record in a number of ways, arbitrarily, ad hoc, Um, perhaps to make my points perhaps to cheat, perhaps to mislead you I don't know, but let me just make some points and I'll leave it for you to decide how much you want to attach credibility to the things that I say I split up the post-war period in an ad hoc manner into four periods, they're pretty well known periods look at the Bretton Woods period um, the 50s through to 1970 Um, in Europe this was known as the golden period of growth, post-war economic growth it wasn't quite so golden in the UK but what can you do Um, 1971 to 1992, we can think about that as the period of the loss and search for the nominal anchor. Some view that inflation would be stable, was what everyone strove to achieve, and they didn't do very well, as we're about to see. We have the long expansion, my period, the period in which I kind of grew up and and thought more about the economy, Um, and we'll look at the performance in that period And then we'll look after the fall, after the fall of monetary policy, after we discover that everything we've been doing the last 15 years has been wrong, we're going to look at the performance then and get some idea of just how bad was it. Um, And uh, I'm going to look at this in in three very simple ways, which I apologise, but maybe it still helps us think about stuff. We're going to look at the series in time series. We'll look at, I'll concoct a measure of welfare. And I say concoct, just made it up see what we think it tells us. It tells us how badly off did people feel over this period. And we can believe or disbelieve the numbers, but I'll be very open about how they're constructed. And then we'll look in cross-section. We'll look at the three periods, four periods separately. We'll try to get some idea of how well this Norman Lanka performed in these different periods. Was it a dragging Norman Lanka, or was it one that helped fix the economy around a fixed point? So let's have a look first. the the upper red line is year-on-year inflation measured by a broadly based measure of the price index GDP deflator and the blue lines are real GDP. These are all year-on-year growth numbers from the mid-1950s and um, I'd kind of draw your attention to some obvious things. If you look to your left of the chart 56 uh, onwards the um, red peaks in inflation in the early 60s the the mid-60s and the Late 60s, we all getting gradually higher with every economic cycle. Some possibility that maybe we were losing grip on inflation over this period, even though we were in a fixed exchange rate regime. Something wasn't quite right. It didn't seem to me that peak after peak, inflation was being stable. It was being cranked up. And for those of you who um, want to increase the hit rate for Gresham College, if you go back to my previous lecture, I explain exactly that process through the expectations augmented Phillips curve. Output, unfortunately, was going the other way. The blue peaks in output, we can see in the late 50s, the mid-60s and the late 60s, every peak was lower than the previous peak. So that's kind of a story of uh, relative decline in terms of act- nominal activity. 70s, we know we've got good examples here of negative supply shocks. A negative supply shock tends to increase inflation and r- lower real output growth. And we can see two big events there. We can also see that inflation almost ran out of control. Uh, Very large shocks to nominal prices and wages in this period. The story is well known and has been told by a number of people. And then we have these periods of disinflation, um, another boom in the late 1980s, um, a recession induced by interest rates that were too high for the state of the economy within the ERM. And then this period of stability or the long expansion, as I've described it, Ending with this massive, massive shock in 2007, 8, 9, with GDP year on year growth at, a, at its largest fall being 6% negative, the largest post war number, um, probably not the largest number in UK history, but the largest post war number that we've seen. And subsequently, the blue line um, uh, has not been that positive, but there's been a bit of return to stronger growth in the last year or so, and inflation has been reasonably stable. What do we make of that? Well, first, see if we can think about this in welfare terms. And welfare, for economists, you would have, may have, you have come across misery indices before. What people tend to do is add inflation and unemployment. It's not a great way of thinking about misery, particularly. What we're more interested in is, is variances. We're more interested in how much do we expect output to change from its steady state level, which might be, reflect productivity growth in the economy. How much might we reasonably expect inflation to deviate from its average or its target in an economy. And these measures of variances are the things that drive our views about uncertainty. Do we think inflation is going to be high or low? Do we think output is going to be high or low? What kind of planning, what kind of insurance, what kind of hedges do I have to buy to deal with those levels of uncertainty? If output volatility is high, will that mean I might lose my job? Well, it might very well, in fact. That's what it reflects. So these measures of welfare seem to be much more important in variances. So I added up the standard deviations of inflation output and I've arbitrarily taken a five-year rolling window. You can muck around with it and you can spend a lot of time on these things. But I just wanted to point to a couple of things. If you look hard enough at at the line and imagine a trend, you can see a very gradual fall in, in these over time. Arguably, they might be suggesting that economic management has got better. If you imagine that the rate at which shocks it, it hits the economy it doesn't change very much over time. What matters is the institutional regime that we have in place to deal with them. A good regime would be able to stabilise the economy. Just think of it as a, a, a better set of brakes on your car, um, allowing the economy to get back to its natural level more quickly. A less good set of institutional devices would mean that the car slides or skids and takes a long time to come to a stop. It's one metaphor that we might want to use in this world. And clearly you can see that um, not only were the 70s an absolutely awful um, decade, pretty good for music, but it's not so good uh, for the state of the economy. I wonder if there's some story in there somewhere but anyway we can see. Um, and uh, even though there was an element of uh, stabilisation in the 1980s, we kind of let things go, both with the late 80s boom and the experience of the ERM, but this remarkable period of stability in the 1990s is once again reflected, and of course the large fall in GDP 2008-9 drives up this five year moving average for five years and we f- see it falling at the end because of the nature of the window um, but you can see even then that the, the peak in the most recent period is, is not as bad as where we were in the late 80s and under the ARM. so even after the large shocks it doesn't look, even though we've all been complaining, things may not have been quite as bad um, against the, the longer run historical record and that's an important point I think we ought to bear in mind when we think about the performance of the economy over the longer period, not just with respect to an unduly brilliant period in the period 92 to 2007. So let's take another cut on the data and let's have a look um, at scatters. um, On the horizontal axis, um, in each case is output growth, and on the vertical axis is inflation, and we've just got dots that represent the output and inflation Um, for every year within each of the four sets of years I've outlined on the four charts. The top left is the first period, the Bretton Woods period. The top right is the losing of the nominal anchor period, um, 71 through to 92. The bottom left is this long expansion, this exceptional period of stability. And the bottom right is the most recent period. So a couple of points I'm sure will emerge to anyone who who looks at these things. is firstly that... um, Bretton Woods seemed to provide a form of nominal anchor because inflation tended to stay around 5%, 5% or less um, despite the constellation of shocks. But by the 70s and 80s, it's like the whole economy pivoted from a lower level of inflation to a higher level of inflation with much greater dispersion. That's exactly what we're seeing. So even though you have a similar dispersion in output growth, Um, you've got a reduction in the average level of output growth following these negative supply shocks. We've got a much wider dispersion of inflation rates as the nominal anchor starts to drag and we're losing control of prices and wages in the economy. You see, that was a massive level of dispersion. The regime that we subsequently implemented, inflation targeting, just looks remarkable. Every year, we're within that little box that goes 0 to 5% in terms of inflation and 0 to 5% in terms of output growth. A compact set of outcomes. We've got to assume that in any 15 or 14-year period there were shocks hitting the economy. We can't imagine there were not. East Asia, uh, the East Asian crisis, the LTCM, the bankruptcy of, of uh, the Russian state, uh, at least once. I can't remember the number of times. Um, um, uh, of course, the events associated with uh, 9-11 and, and the small recession in the United States. so a whole bunch of shocks at that time. But the nominal regime seem to be delivering stable, nominal performance. And let's turn to the most recent period. The massive shock It hit the economy as a result of the financial crisis. Um, Andrew Crockett, a former uh, Secretary, uh, General Secretary of the BIS, really described um, financial crisis as not a shock in itself, but the, the, the uh, revelation of the build-up of risks in the previous period, of a long period of stability, and perhaps risks will be built up and then we realised what they were. And that was the thing that affected the economy in a substantive way. And of course we see um, significantly negative rates of output growth um, over a number of observations in that period which is certainly bad relative to the previous period but remarkably no loss of nominal anchor. No sense in which inflation has lost um, and moved away to something as what may have happened in the 1970s. Certainly one may be tempted to stack up these and sort of imagine a world in which um, the shocks have been, in both cases, mitigated with the new regime that's in place. Now, I'm not saying inflation targeting is by any way perfect. I'm saying it actually bears thinking that maybe the performance has not been quite as bad as commentators, uh, media commentators, have been making out. Condition on the shocks that we've had. Now, we're going to um, go through some developments in monetary thought. Now, uh, try not to take that as a signal either to leave or, or to fall asleep. I'm going to try to make it interesting as I can. Uh, so I'll be watching your eyes just to see how much of it is going in uh, as I go along. Uh, so um, really, the revolution in monetary thought after the Serious treatment of rational expectations started with people like Robert Lucas, Tom Sargent, Neil Wallace, Kidland Prescott, Barrow Gordon. We'll go through those ideas shortly, but they all understood that many of the ideas they were developing had been thought about before. So here's a couple of quotes from David Hume, who Robert Lucas, in his 1995 Nobel Prize lecture, cited as someone who uh, was important to him in his thinking. Um, David Hume, of course, a son of the Scottish Enlightenment of the 18th century. And he writes in his essay on money, money is not properly speaking one of the subjects of commerce, but only the instrument by which men have agreed to facilitate the exchange of one commodity for another. It is none of the wheels of trade, it is the oil, which renders the motion of the wheels more smooth and easy. If you consider any one kingdom by itself, it is evident that the greater or less plenty of money is of no consequence since the prices of commodities are always proportioned to the plenty of money. So what he's saying there, of course, is that if we increase the money supply or lower the money supply, we don't affect real activity. We don't affect real endowments, productivity, preferences. The accrual of real income in an economy is not affected in any long-run sense by the money supply. And this is the notion of monetary neutrality. So all money can do is have a temporary impact to maybe help the adjustment of the economy from one equilibrium to another, just as we saw with those plots during the long expansion and the recent crisis. If we can design monetary policy correctly, we can jump to the next equilibrium more easily than if we get monetary policy wrong. And Hume is recognising that two and a half centuries ago. And he also goes on to make some points about what a central banker should be doing. From the whole of this reasoning, we may conclude that it is no manner of consequence with regard to the domestic happiness of a state whether money be in a greater or less quantity. So it's not going to make you happier, right? It doesn't matter how much you've got. The good policy of the magistrate consists only in keeping it, if possible, still increasing, because by that means he keeps alive a spirit of industry, in the nation, and increases the stock of labour in which consists all real power and lit riches. So, again, the central bank's job is only to try and keep real activity going. It cannot permanently affect it, he states again. So, let's, with that, with that insight that monetary policy doesn't affect the long run um, in a positive way, it can only affect adjustment from period to period, from shop to shop, let's now think about a number of uh, ideas developed by the characters I've already mentioned. Now, I've been told in my lectures not to put any maths up at any time at all, but uh, rules are made for breaking, I think, uh, but let's not worry about the maths. I just want to show um, a calculation from Robert Lucas about the cost of business cycle fluctuations. How valuable is it to you um, if the economy always stayed at its steady state level and it didn't have any variance attached to it? This is a uh, a calculation that Robert Lucas suggested some, well, some 30 years ago now. And the way you do this is you have a utility function. C is for consumption. The rho is a measure of risk aversion. So just think that the way that you turn a level of consumption into an amount of utility is some function of the amount of consumption you have multiplied by some function of how risk averse you are. That's all he's kind of arguing the important point is if I want to measure that level of utility and I take an approximation to it, and this point pointer hopefully works, that things that matter are the level of consumption here. Forget about this power and that. Just, that's just some number. That's just some number. It doesn't matter. But what matters in terms of utility is the level of consumption. And look at this. This is a minus sign, which means that... Let's forget about this. Let's just call that another number, some number, some magnitude. Call it A doesn't matter. But what here is, this is sigma two, means the variance of consumption. And it's negative in the variance. So what we're saying is that if I want to measure people's utility, it increases in the level of consumption and because of this negative sign, falls in the variance of consumption. Other things being equal, you would rather have the same level of utility for a lower level of the variance of consumption. So if you can parameterize, if you can attach some numbers to Rho and to the variance of consumption, you can work out exactly what fraction of average consumption um, you'd be prepared to pay in order to eliminate the variance. So if we calculate this, and we've got some numbers, if average consumption in the UK is about £25,000 per head, and because of the nature of the, the variance of consumption is actually relatively low, even if we're risk of it This is some deep parameter. It turns out that the cost of business cycle fluctuations is only £50 a year. That's all you'd be prepared... If somebody said, how much would you be prepared to pay for an insurance policy that meant there'd be no variance in consumption? According to this calculation, it would only be £50. I pay a lot more for my car, but then again... they know how badly I drive. So, it's so one thing to bear in mind, is that Lucas says that a lot of the offsetting of the business cycle might happen naturally through the private sector's ability to borrow or to plan so that shocks when they come along don't materially affect their consumption path. The first point bear in mind. Now, next point to bear in mind is the famous Lucas Critique, for which he won the Nobel Prize. And the best way to understand Lucas Critique is to just run through an example we can understand. the previous lecture, we thought about how policymakers might want to look at the parameters of the economy, estimate the parameters of the economy, and say, OK, I've estimated the parameters of the economy. I therefore now know how much I have to lower output by in order to get inflation down, because I've got some trade-off between the two, and I've also estimated how sensitive output is to to particular change in interest rates. As a result of those two calculations, I can always try to stabilise inflation around my target. But Lucas spots the circularity, and let's just go through the arguments. Even if the policymaker estimates certain behavioural parameters, as I've just said, how much inflation may flow from a given level of output, um, they may then, having estimated those parameters, decide to respond to any observed increases in output by using their estimates of the responsiveness of inflation to output and and that impact on the policy instrument to change the level of output. But Lucas points to a circularity. When I go away and estimate the previous relationships between inflation and output and the relationships between interest rates and output, the estimates contain within them previous policy responses. So when I try and use these estimates, if I change my policy rule, the parameters themselves will then change, meaning that I won't achieve the objective that I intended to achieve. The system will learn from my changing responses and that means when I try to use responses based on previously estimated behaviour, the system will not respond in the way that I expect. This is a fundamental problem both for econometrics and for econometri- for a policy evaluation using econometric methods. Because you can see there, there's no fixed point. If when I estimate my responses and I optimize for them, if the economy changes, my responses will have to change again, I have to re-estimate. When I re-estimate and I make some responses, the economy changes again, and I have to re-estimate. So the intuition is: if I can find a fixed point about which if I make my responses, the economy doesn't change anymore, I then have a solution to the problem. But finding that fixed point is really tremendously hard because the economy may iterate in all kinds of directions that makes this system unstable. And that's one way of thinking about what happened in the 1970s. Now, that may seem um, rather abstract. Let me see if I can make it a little bit clearer to follow so, we we'll use an example that's close to all our hearts, and that is England's failure to win a penalty shootout at any World Cup, which is a form of depression for any male of my age every few years. So, it's either Germany, uh, Argentina, or Portugal, I think, are the teams that regularly knock us out of the World Cup. So, the question might be should the goalie ask an econometrician, um, when faced with a penalty taker, as to whether he should jump to the left or the right? Now, so the goalie there, the grey guy with the, with the bubble and the, and the question marks coming out of his head, is saying, should I jump to my left or right? I don't know what to do here. So he, he, he phones an econometrician. He says, look, I've got the, 17 from, uh, the number 17 from Germany bearing down on me in a minute. Which way does he kick? Does he kick to my left or my right? And the econometrician runs some calculations and he comes up and says, look, he always shoots the ball to your left. That's what's going to happen. He's going to shoot the ball to your left. And the econometrician tells the goalie he's going to shoot the ball to his left, so the goalie jumps to his left. Number 17, actually, this time, kicks the ball to his right. Number 17 scores, and England drop out of the World Cup, and grown men are seen crying in the streets. Again, how did this happen? Well, what happens, of course, is the econometrician, having done the calculation, then publishes his paper in a journal. The number 17 has read the paper on his way in to kick the ball. He therefore knows that the goalie is going, to kick, uh, is going to jump to the left. He's read the paper. He's in full information of the policy response and changes his behaviour. Changes his behaviour and scores and sends England crashing out of the World Cup once again. It's a depressing thought. Let's see what happens um, at the next World Cup. There were further innovations in policy. The policy and effectiveness proposal of Sergeant Wallace. Now, by this time, you can see, for those of you who work in the financial markets, you can see some of the ideas of the efficient markets hypothesis doing its worst, or its best, in my view. This is a basic idea, that financial prices contain all publicly available information, and that therefore means that you can't use any publicly, inf- publicly available information to profit from changes in financial prices. And these ideas were both influencing policymaking, and policymaking themselves are also influencing these ideas. And let's take one example, and that's the policy and effectiveness proposal. Let's suppose a monetary feedback rule itself relies on public information that's also available to the public. If the feedback rule itself relies on public information, it cannot be new to the public because the public have already had that information and have already worked out what the policy feedback is going to be. The policymaker therefore cannot introduce anything that's new and therefore cannot influence the previously optimised plans of forward-looking agents. In that sense, Sergeant and Wallace argue that feedback rules cannot fool smart economic agents into temporarily altering their labour supply and inducing a boom or getting back from a recession to full employment. But it had an interesting implication. Because if you thought it through, what it meant was that central bankers and policymakers shouldn't be open about their policy. They should hold information back from the public. They should operate with secrecy and mystique behind closed doors. And they shouldn't tell us what they're up to. Only then could they surprise us. Only then could they introduce bits of information that were not already part of our information set and therefore cause us to change our levels of labour supply. I personally don't think that's an attractive uh, idea for welfare or for common social objectives, for policymakers to play war games with households. Far better to be open and explain what they're doing and get people to bind in to the same plans. So let's continue. So if you don't want to operate by stealth or mystique, you're going to have to be open about what you want to do and persuade people that your plans are consistent with theirs and you're not going to cheat. That's the game we then found ourselves in. But Kittle and Prescott, Barra Gordon, there must be a way of shortening that. If anyone can help me, I'd be very grateful. Um, Argue that one of the problems here is that there's generally an absence of a commitment technology, something that we can believe the government will adopt and never change its mind about very hard of us to think about anything the government would ever do and not change its mind about, right? We're sort of constantly reminding ourselves of politicians' short-term memory problems and lapses and changes of behaviour. And again, this uh, this idea is an exact attack on control theory. Control theory says that agents are not smart, we can tell them what to do and they'll do it. Um, But of course, if people are learning they're not necessarily going to do exactly what you want. They're going to do things in their own interest and they're going to work out what your plans are. Again, it's best to understand this through an example. Let's suppose the government announces that it's going to have a very low tax regime for foreign capitalists who bring their money over. Of course, that would never happen here, but let's suppose we have that in place. Capital would flow in, wouldn't it? And as the capital flows in, the incentives for the government changes. All of a sudden, from having no capital to tax they suddenly have a massive amount of capital. And a little tax would yield a lot of money. And a government that has state-contingent expenditure plans, shocks come along, financial crises come along, banks go bust, they're going to have to raise taxes from time to time. And all of a sudden, this sticky capital is in place, and by raising taxes a little, they can raise a lot of money. That's what I mean by their commitment technology not being in place. We know that at some future point, when the structure of the economy has changed, they will have an incentive to change their behaviour. But here's the rub. In the absence of a commitment technology, the investors in the first period who are smart know the government will change their mind at one point in the future and therefore they will not invest in the country in the first place. And everyone is worse off. The country doesn't attract capital. And foreign capitalists don't get a high rate of return from investing in an overseas country. In the absence of a commitment technology, everyone is worse off. So what we needed are forms of commitment technologies or credibility in monetary policy making. Let me run through an example here. The central bank may try to attain, may say that it wants to attain low inflation, price stability. But the central bank, aka the monetary authorities, aka the uh, chancellor, may also want um, high output prior to an election. They have an incentive to try and crank output above its steady state level at some point. So the central bank could play low and it could play high. The private sector then has to work out what the central bank is going to do. And the private sector may say, OK, the central bank says it's going to have low inflation. We believe it's going to have low inflation we will make low wage demands, and we're at a bliss point. There's full employment, um, central bank achieves its low inflation target, everyone is happy. But it's precisely at that low inflation level the incentive may kick in for an inflation shock. Because if we have a low inflation rate, and wages are set at a low level, if we have an inflation shock at that point, real wages will fall, output will rise, and the central bank will benefit from high output, and the private sector will have to suffer low wages. The private sector, of course, is smart enough, again, to see this possibility. So because they see this possibility, the bliss equilibrium is not actually very stable at all. They can see the central bank, a.k.a. the monetary authorities, may change their behaviour, impart part an inflation shock, and so the private sector will play a game where it expects high inflation... If it expects high inflation, demands high levels of wage settlements, the central bank will have no option but to meet those high levels, achieve full employment, but at high levels of inflation, and we have an inflation bias. In the absence of a commitment technology, in the absence of an independent central bank that has no stated objective to raise output above its natural level, we will have an inflation bias. Now, we know much about the UK's search for a credible rule. Uh, I've mentioned much of it already, the post-Bretton Woods income and prices policies, um, the adoption of monetary targets, various measures of monetary targets through the medium-term financial strategy of the 1980s, the ultimate abandonment of the domestic monetary anchor with Deutschmark shadowing and the joining of the ERM in 1990 the re-adoption of domestic monetary targets or an inflation target in 1992 with inflation targeting one and the formation of the MPC with inflation targeting two. Now, the adoption of um, an overseas credible central bank may may be a sensible option if you can't develop domestic commitment technology. And domestic commitment technology or credible commitment technology would involve the view that the central bank would tend to hit its targets. This is a well-known paper from um, the mid-1990s. And we have here targets for M3 growth in the 1990s at uh, three separate points. And the targets are the kind of triangle shapes that we see here, um, again set in the following year and in the following year. And the black line are the outcomes for the levels of M3 this is a dangerous question. Does anybody know which country this is? UN. Okay. Well, it's not the UK, exactly right. It's Germany. So people think Germany, credible central bank, always hits its targets. Well, of course, it generally has hit its final low inflation target. But there are various occasions, particularly after the reunification um, And other shocks in velocity will mean that it's prepared to allow its M3 targets to miss in order to hit its final objective. In the same way, development of a credible monetary regime may also require the adoption of some form of credible escape clauses. So I just want to put that on on the side. And we have escape clauses in our mechanism through letters to the Chancellor. Sadly, uh, the euro hasn't got any escape clauses. But that's something we will... Move on to. Now, um, I have about 10 minutes to go, so I'm going to finish on time, but there may be time for some questions um, even then. So, how could we solve this? But how could we create an economy or model in which we could deal with rational expectations, in which we could deal with a game, in which we could deal with the structural instabilities of econometric methods, in which we could deal with policy and effectiveness? in which we could bind people on into our targets. Well, there need to be a number of elements of that, the economist's profession thought. Firstly, we need models in which microeconomic foundations are respected. So we need households with budget constraints who are respecting their period budget constraints. The flow incomes equal their flow expenditures over their lifetimes so that if I'm building up debt at some point, I'm, I'm going to be paying it off. Firms and models have to respect profit maximising, and also monetary and fiscal policies will be set in such a manner that the government is not violating its budget constraint over time. With these models, we could study the welfare consequences, the things that may determine equilibrium, and also consider alternate policy rules and decide what form of policy rules perform best. And in a wide class of models, we found that inflation targeting tended to perform best. Now, the new Keynesian model that became the workhorse had a number of elements to it, which I, shall run through. Um, some of this should be clear. I don't think there's too much in there that's um, beyond people in this room. Um, the idea of we have monopolistic, monopolistically competitive firms who are setting a markup over their prices, over their costs. There's an optimal price that they want relative to their costs, an optimal markup. These firms will say they've got sticky prices because prices are sticky. That means there's room for monetary policy to change real things in the economy. Some nominal prices are sticky so that if monetary policy moves nominal interest rates, real things can change temporarily. In this setup, there's an output gap. A positive output gap is inflationary. A negative output gap is deflationary. Policy wants to offset that and close output gaps agents in this setup are forward looking so they're respecting the kinds of issues that Lucas, Sargent Wallace, Kidland, Prescott Barrow Gordon have put up, we're not going to be able to fool these guys, we're going uh, going to assume they understand the model and we're going to assume that they can understand the policy responses and we assume they're going to make plans in such a way that respect those policy responses and the structure of the economy so we're going to treat them as equals in these models that's a very key point perhaps at a social level as well In these models, um, inflation is a function of the stream of policy rates, and the economy can be buffeted by various shocks um, to which the policymaker responds by changing real rates. Let me see if we can look at that graphically, so we can understand it um, even better. So we have here on the horizontal um, axis inflation, and on the vertical axis the policy rate, and at zero inflation, the nominal policy rate will give you the real rate or the natural rate. What's the natural rate? Think of that. The natural rate is some interest rate in the economy that allows savings to equal investment. So we've got clearing in the goods market. We Remember clearing in the goods market from when we looked at the ISLM analysis in the previous lectures. So just imagine that's a world of full employment at that real interest rate. Now, if we have inflation... If we're going to hold nominal assets, we're going to want interest rates to rise equi proportionally with inflation. So the real interest rate is unchanged, but we're getting a compensation for higher inflation through a higher policy rate. And this line is called the Fisher equation. So if we've chosen some inflation target here, that tells us what the long-run interest rate should be in our economy. It will be the natural rate plus the inflation rate. And that will be the equilibrium that we want to tend to. It's the thing that we pick. That could be our inflation target and it could be 2%. So I've drawn these in. And here we have our inflation target. Let's think of it as 2%. Here we have our natural rate. And here we have the policy rate, which is the sum of the natural rate and the inflation rate. And this is our inflation target. Now, number of points can emerge. There's nothing unique about this inflation target. You could have chosen any inflation target that you wanted to. You could have had any long-term interest rate that you wanted to. Why did we choose 2%? Some moderate inflation tends to help relative price adjustment. Some moderate inflation might deal with the fact that the quality of goods and services increase over time. And some moderate inflation um, is kind of imperceptible. 2% is just as close to price stability as otherwise. And by having a small positive rate of inflation, the idea is that small negative shocks wouldn't need to lead to negative inflation. So you could still have 1% or half a percent inflation and have some adjustment in the economy. So we end up here. Now, what we have is the possibility that shocks drive the inflation rate above or below the target. Now, off model, what's going on there is that there are movements in the output gap in this economy. So when inflation is high, the level of activity in the economy is high relative to steady state or its natural level or the point at which savings equals investment. The high level of activity tends to drive up inflation. So that's the basic story. So economic imbalances in the economy are reflected in inflation disequilibrium, inflation changes from equilibrium, either in expectation or actual observation, either way. They both represent some form of disequilibrium in savings and investment. That was the central idea that people were pursuing in the, at this time. Similarly, negative inflation is reflecting some idea that the level of activity is below the long-run level. Um, there's excess. Um, there's insufficient demand in the economy, so something has to be done to get that back to its long-run level. And so what the policymakers drew was a policy function. Now, this is linearized. So that in reality, it might be non-linear in a very complicated way, but let's just make it linear. And of course, we've drawn it in such a way that it's, it's steeper than this equiproportional relationship between inflation and the nominal interest rate. So what does this then mean? It means that if there's a small increase in inflation, the policy rate rises by more. The policy rate rises by more, the real interest rate has risen the real interest rate has risen, that will bear down on consumption and investment in the economy and reduce demand so we tend back towards this long-run level. So it's self-stabilising. The rule is self-stabilising. Agents know already, they're forward-looking, that if there's increase in demand, that interest rates will rise and bring this back to equilibrium. So they will plan and coordinate around that fixed point because they understand the rule. Similarly, analogously... We have the same thing for a downward shock. If inflation falls, that tells you there's insufficient demand in the economy. the nominal interest rate falls by more. That means real interest rates have fallen. If real interest rates are below their long-run level, we bring forward consumption, we bring forward investment. It's cheap to do that. That increases demand, gets the economy back to this point. And that's the story of monetary policy from '92 through to 2007. one of the problems or a number of problems with this model the natural rate of course in reality is not fixed the natural rate could fall over time if it falls over time then we're going to be you know we're going to be hitting this point here at a lower interest rate if we're hitting this point here at a lower interest rate the shocks may be large enough that we hit the zero level of policy rates here and to all intents and purposes we've been at that zero level since 2009 this is not a moment where I'm going to go into the problems that monetary policy came across in the crisis that's for next time but I want to say that even though this worked this problem emerged that we hit the lower zero bound and if inflationary pressure continued to be negative you can see what's going on here is that if inflation expectations continue to fall real interest rates are rising even though the economy is in a deeper and deeper recession as we go this way. So the interest rate stops being stabilising. In the earlier example, this interest rate was always stabilising. You can imagine arrows heading the economy back to equilibrium. But once you reach this point... I'm sorry, I'm not very good with this thing. This point, because policy rates, real rates continue to rise, this becomes destabilising and the economy can get trapped in a low inflation... Low employment equilibrium. I don't think it has been because of the kind of responses that we've had that have been different and not suggested by this model. Okay. So I've tried to ask and answer a number of questions post war economy. Exactly how bad has this recession been? Yeah, it's been bad. But some of the outcomes haven't been as bad as we might have anticipated had we not had the form of monetary regime that we actually have in place. Um, I do think it's now hard for monetary policy to keep fiscal and financial factors in a box marked do not open. Pandora style they've been let out and we're going to have to rethink the monetary settlement with all these things in play rather than ignoring them. There are many more levers in place now than just bank rate as I outlined in that graph a minute ago. We have to think across many more dimensions so the chart next time may be even more complicated, I warn you. But it'll be even lighter outside then so I'm sure we'll get through it. It'll be just fine. The question I leave you with is does this all mean that the fundamental intellectual framework requires changing or not? Is it still not the case that we need microeconomic foundations? Is it still not the case that we have to think about economic policy as a game with smart agents, not with dumb agents. We have to think about how to write down rules that they believe you will be able to stabilise the economy. Because they believe in your credibility, it's a lot easier to achieve that credibility. So I think that's where I'll end today's lecture. Thank you very much. For all information, please go to gresham.ac.uk.